Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, we'll talk about weaponization of the FBI and our other intel agencies and our federal agencies in general, a new congressional committee formed to investigate that, and my ongoing lawsuit over the government's unlawful surveillance of me and my family's computers while I was a CBS News investigative correspondent. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We have a lot to talk about today. So often current events intersect with the drama over the government intrusions of my computers years ago while I was a CBS News correspondent. People consistently ask for updates on my lawsuit against the government, which has been going on for years, and I haven't really sat down and done a podcast with the latest or even all of the history about all of this. If you really want to dig in, you could get the book I wrote a few years back called Stonewalled. It's a New York Times bestseller, and it goes over in detail how all of it came about. But in case you would like a refresher or summary because it's relevant to today's news events, here we go. Under President Obama, I was covering a lot of controversies, not political reporting, but on scandals such as waste, fraud, and abuse, scandals such as Enron, scandals about charities misspending money like the Red Cross mishandling and misspending 9-11 funds, all kinds of stories that ultimately do, I guess, have political implications to a certain party or political figures. I never looked at it that way when I did the stories. It didn't really matter to me that the chips fell where they may. And I certainly did my share of stories that I guess both Republicans and Democrats didn't like. A number of them recognized by the Emmy Awards for excellence in reporting. And these were not one-sided stories. These were not political vendettas, so much of what you see today in the media, I think. But after I had reported on the Fast and Furious scandal, which was about a set of cases that were exposed, and I did a lot of reporting with a key whistleblower, a federal agent who spoke up, that the government was actually involved in numerous operations to let guns from the United States fall into the hands of Mexican drug cartels. It was unthinkable at the time. People could hardly believe it was true. The Department of Justice, which ultimately oversaw the whole program, denied it initially. After many months and exposés and a lot of my reporting, they had to come out and admit that, yes, they did know about it. It was done under them. And it went all the way up to the White House and actually caused President Obama to declare executive privilege for the first and I believe the only time of his presidency to withhold the documents on this case and this story. So we never really got to the bottom of Fast and Furious as far as I'm concerned in terms of all the facets and angles that it involved. It was very sensitive to the Obama administration. I also was assigned to cover the Benghazi attacks on Americans and the scandals with the U.S. government providing false information initially about what had happened, with it turning out that the U.S. government, the State Department, under the Obama administration and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, 
ignored repeated requests from the ambassador of Libya to have support. There were very specific predictions or threats that Americans would be attacked and how it would be done. Uh, Previous attacks that had been predicted were coming to fruition, but the diplomats on the ground in Libya were unable to convince the State Department in the United States to provide the proper level of security. And then when they were attacked by Islamic extremists, the government here and figures in the State Department and at the White House falsely claimed or told the public that this was a spontaneous protest, not an organized attack by Islamic extremists, when in fact, after much reporting that I did on the topic, it was revealed through documents and whistleblowers that they knew all along, meaning the Obama administration and everybody up the chain, that this was not a spontaneous protest, that it was an organized attack. Again, all of this very sensitive because it was running up to the re-election date for President Obama. And as I covered these stories, I guess maybe a bit naive, not understanding how central or key a role these events played in terms of politics. So I was carefully hounded and followed and trolled, really, by Obama officials when I did this reporting at CBS News. And it did have an impact. I will tell you that the CBS officials who initially assigned me to cover these stories and wanted me to cover them ultimately often got worn down by the phone calls and the communications and the accusations and so on from the Obama administration, which would find numerous ways to follow up after I did a factually accurate, but I guess embarrassing story. They would find ways to kind of harass CBS or try to influence them not to air more stories. But amidst all of this, there were two separate intelligence sources that I had that I didn't know very well. And as far as I know today, they don't know each other who approached me and told me that I was likely being monitored by the Obama administration because of the type of reporting that I was doing. And I remember saying something like, well, what do you mean being monitored? And they said, well, your computers. Now, this sounds so routine today. We know all of the illegal surveillance that's been going on and the abuses by our government intel agencies. But at the time, this was told to me, and I'm thinking we're talking around late 2012, it sounded far-fetched because I'd never heard of any such thing, nor had I suspected it. And one of these sources said to me, have you noticed anything strange about your computers? Have they been behaving unnaturally? Now, things are done differently now. I think the surveillance is much more easy and seamless for them. But at the time, I was told the tools that they used to surveil people like me often inadvertently left clues. In other words, there were glitches that would happen in your systems, on your computers, in your phones, anything that they were monitoring. And yes, I had had probably two years of that happen and a long record of phone calls to Verizon about every device that I owned going haywire in ways that were really unusual. Of course, I never suspected that was because of government spying until all of this came about. But even when these sources hinted at what might be going on, it again sounded very far-fetched that I would be monitored or targeted by such an operation. Well, as part of the disruptions to my electronic devices that were happening, there is someone who works affiliated, we'll say, with an intelligence agency who had called my house, who's an acquaintance, who noticed we really couldn't have a phone conversation because the phone was having so many disruptions and clicks and buzzes and all the weird things that were happening at that time. And he said, 
I'll just come over to your house because we couldn't really have the phone conversation. He came over and he said, what's going on with your phones? And I told him kind of the whole story and what the Intel sources had suggested. And he said, I have a contact that can look at your computer and tell if there are any sort of government software intrusions involved. And it was really a stroke of luck because this surveillance is happening to all kinds of U.S. citizens we now know, but it doesn't show up in routine malware searches. CBS News at the time was constantly doing updates and looking for that kind of malware or you know, some kind of corporate surveillance or spyware on your computers, and they never found any. Well, I was told the FBI and government tools that are used for this are invisible to the normal searches. So you have to have an expert who understands how to find that stuff. They're the ones who can identify if it's in your systems. Sure enough, to my surprise and to the surprise of the sources involved in getting this forensics analysis done, there was obvious evidence they found of a long-term monitoring effort that was not authorized, they said, by the FISA or the government surveillance court. So this was an unauthorized intrusion that left evidence that they had done things such as gotten into my fast and furious work files and looked at photographs. They had a keystroke monitoring program in there. They were able to operate my computers remotely as if they were sitting at the keyboard based on software or, if I'm using the right term, whatever tools they had in the computer. They used Skype, which was downloaded on my computer, but they could activate it. The government had a way, and still does, I'm sure, to activate Skype without it looking like it's on, but they can listen in on your conversations and your audio that way, just like they can activate your phone even when it's off or appears to be off if the battery's in it, and they can listen in on you that way when your phone appears to be off. Learned a lot through this process. They also were able to access the CBS proprietary new system called ENPS, so that means they were in the CBS corporate computers, which was a very big deal as well. And I immediately notified CBS News about this. And the first thing I said to my bureau chief was, you know, I can't be the only one they're doing this to. Certainly I was, I guess, a lead journalist in the nation that was doing the kind of reporting they would care about. But there were other journalists doing that kind of reporting as well. And I knew intuitively that if I was being monitored, this was an effort that was probably dragnetting a number of journalists and probably other citizens or people deemed to be some kind of a threat. Oh, and I left out one important thing. We learned that the intruders had downloaded classified documents, buried them deep inside my operating system in a place I wouldn't know how to get to, but I guess in theory, if they wanted to make it look as though someone had given me documents they shouldn't have, this is a time they were going after government whistleblowers, maybe that's what that could be used for. It's certainly not illegal for me to have classified documents as long as I didn't coerce somebody or convince them to steal them. But there was some reason they planted those classified documents in there. Well, CBS News hired their own independent forensic firm to confirm all of this since my intelligence sources couldn't really go on the record with a report. And their forensics experts verified the intrusions. And after a period of months, CBS finally issued a news release about it and said that they were going to work very hard to get more information. But to tell you the truth, they didn't work very hard as far as I know, and I really never heard much about it after that or any efforts that they made to try to track down more about it. So meantime, 
I had an amazing attorney hear about the case and offer to represent me in a lawsuit against the government because the Department of Justice clearly was not going to prosecute its own people or even give me information or assistance about the illegal intrusions that had happened, which, you know, this is an international story and outrage, not because it happened to me, but the idea that the government would allegedly intrude upon a journalist's computers at the time, this was just unheard of. Again, today we're sort of numb to it because we've heard of so many abuses, but back then this was such a big story. So with the help of that attorney, we got an independent forensic analysis. We've had several more since then, encompassing my CBS computers, my personal computers at home, which were likewise infiltrated, and have gotten more and more information over the years about how it was done, the timing of it, the methods used. The thing that's impossible to get pretty much without the government's cooperation is the detail of who exactly was responsible. We have information and allegations about that, but how high up the chain it goes, unless we have documents that show the answer to that, we can't really say. We only know that government IP addresses were illegally found in my computer, and that's as good, I'm told, as a fingerprint when it comes to attribution. So there's no doubt the government was in my computers, despite what may have been spun by media matters and their media partners and propaganda groups who tried to discredit the story, there's no dispute that the government was in my computers unlawfully. When we had all that evidence, and that was pretty early on, I thought, well, this is where the government looks at the irrefutable evidence and apologizes and promises to find out who's responsible. Well, obviously that didn't happen, and the Department of Justice dug in and decided to protect the guilty agents and even leak information that made it seem as though maybe this hadn't happened and maybe it wasn't true. And even when I filed a lawsuit, they had unlimited taxpayer money, they still do, that they can spend trying to get the lawsuit thrown out before it could ever get to trial on many technical grounds. This goes on and on. And for the individual trying to fight the government that has all the information that you need to prove your case, that has unlimited funds and tools, and that usually, in my view, has the court's benefit of the doubt when it comes to many things, it's really an uphill battle. I've had a couple of attempts to sue the Department of Justice, the FBI, Eric Holder, Rod Rosenstein, the parties that we believe were responsible. These have been dismissed on certain technical grounds, such as um, the government has sovereign immunity. It's very hard to sue people in the government for things that they may have done or been responsible for. First of all, how do you prove they're responsible for it without discovery? But you can't get discovery until you can prove they were responsible for it. It's sort of this catch-22 loop that you run into prior to trial. But in any event, they enjoy broad immunity, and Congress would have to change that, and quite frankly, they ought to. Because right now, whether it was intentional or not, the laws that have been passed make it where it's nearly impossible to hold authorities responsible for unlawful and wrong things that they do to American citizens. Fast forward to today, we do still have a court action pending whereby we are suing two federal agents, and there will be unnamed federal agents that if we were to get discovery in this case that leads to more information, we would 
of course, sue these other agents and officials responsible. But for now, the lawsuit is against someone who admits having worked on behalf of the government in the Baltimore U.S. Attorney's Office under Rod Rosenstein some years ago in sort of a task force or a group that was said to be spying on thousands of people. And I believe, by the way, there are multiple operations doing this sort of thing, not just one. But this one operating out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore at the time, according to sources, was involved in the spying on me and my family. And this source gave other information about who else was involved. One of them, he said, is a man named Sean Bridges, who at the time was a Secret Service agent, also working out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore, who has since been prosecuted on unrelated government corruption charges and has served time in prison. We're suing him as being part of this operation against me and my family. He has said he doesn't know anything about it. He has no information on it. And we did finally get depositions in recent months, but almost everybody we've spoken to who would have information about this case that we would need or we could use, they pretty much say they don't remember anything about it. It's been too long. It's been too many years. They don't have any documents anymore. Still, somehow we have gotten a bit of useful information through the depositions. One of the things we didn't know before was that the firm hired by CBS News to do the independent forensics exam initially testified in a deposition recently that they saw what they concluded was likely evidence of a crime in my computers. And these are people who had ties to government agencies or who had worked for some of these three-letter agencies in the past. And they said, unbeknownst to me at the time, that they notified the government about this and that someone from the FBI came to their offices and got some information or a briefing about my computers and what they'd found. And these cyber experts that worked for CBS at the time expected some follow-up from the FBI or government as to what they learned, maybe even giving some help as to who this pointed to. But in fact, the firm testified in recent depositions that they never heard back from the government figure or figures who had come to their offices. And that kind of just adds a little bit to the mystery because I learned through a lawsuit I filed against the FBI, a freedom of information lawsuit when they wouldn't give me public information that they owed me. I learned that they opened a case to investigate my computer intrusions after CBS made a public announcement about them. This was, I think, in 2013 or so. They opened a case, according to documents I later got, listing me as the victim, but never contacted me, never interviewed me, never tried to help me, never told me there was a case. And later, when I asked the FBI for all documents involving my case or mentioning me or my case, they falsely claimed they didn't have any. And only after I sued them in court... Of course, great time and expense on my part, and they used taxpayers' money to delay and defend themselves. Only when I sued them did I get a few documents that showed they weren't telling the truth earlier, and in those documents it exposed the fact that they had opened this case but never contacted me about it. It also said that their Washington field office folks had called CBS News and discussed the case with them. Nobody told me that at the time and they would provide no further documentation about that. And I guess you could say the latest on the case as of this recording is that CBS News has been withholding 
one of the original hard drives that we really need to get our hands on, withholding it from us for some reason. First of all, they said they didn't have it when we asked for it in maybe a year or two ago as part of our lawsuit. When we finally reminded them officially that they agreed in writing to preserve all the evidence regarding that case and that if they had let that hard drive go, that would be violating what they agreed to in writing. Well, then suddenly they found the hard drive, but then at this point they said they wouldn't give it to us, that there were certain things on there that were proprietary. And we argued, of course, if there's something you don't think we can see, you can redact that, but you have to give us the rest of what's on there. But plus, we'd already had access to it and a copy, and it didn't make sense to us that they were trying to withhold it. We had a hearing, and we prevailed at the hearing. CBS News has to give us that hard drive. They also are being required by the court to make a good faith effort to locate any communications between CBS News and government officials or agencies or members of Congress about my case. Because there was a lot going on behind the scenes during this time period. You may remember the president of CBS News, David Rhodes, was the brother of one of the top folks in the Obama administration who engineered or at least led a lot of the press and the strategy involving the controversies like Benghazi. So the web grows tangled. Where will my case go next? I won't pretend it's not an uphill battle when I understand now what has to be proven in court to even get the case to court. It's very daunting. You don't have the tools to prove certain names of who's involved in something until you get a complete and honest discovery from certain parties. But you can't get that discovery without walking through the door with a certain amount of proof. Again, that loop or that sort of catch-22. But we continue to pursue the case, and I'm only able to do it with the help of Tab Turner, the attorney who's leading all of this for me. We have had to hire out with other lawyers to do research and appeals and so on, but Tab is really leading the charge and fighting the good fight, and I'm so appreciative for that. I'm also appreciative to the Fourth Amendment advocates, people on both the left and the right and the center, who jumped in a couple of years ago to support the lawsuit when they found out that not one single press organization had stepped in to assist me or to even be interested in writing about the story or investigating it in an honest way, they're staying away from it. And I was speaking at a law conference when the question came up from an audience member as to what groups were helping me with the lawsuit when I said there were no press groups helping me. There were gasps in the room. And afterwards, some of the lawyers approached me and got this GoFundMe together, the Fourth Amendment Litigation Fund for Cheryl Ackeson. And without that, really, it would have been impossible to continue pursuing the case because the ongoing costs of things like just printing up things you have to print up for an appeal, thousands of dollars to have a couple of hours of work done so that some research is done the right way or the way the court requires it. I mean, it goes on and on. So I so respect other ordinary citizens who try to fight for what's right when they're fighting government forces. I now know what they're up against, what you're up against, if you've ever done something like this. And I really respect those who've gotten in the fight and done their best, even against a lot of odds, because it just takes a lot. If you want to read more about the case and see some of the documents involved and even hear audio recordings of one of the appeals, had some really interesting comments from a judge 
I didn't win the appeal on that case, but one judge on the panel who saw things my way made some fascinating and spot-on observations about really what the government was doing to me, what the government does to ordinary citizens who try to sue them, how they play it like a game, and I think I think he was spot on, like I said. Anyway, you can go to CherylAckison.com and look under Special Investigations, and you'll see Ackison versus DOJ. Everything is right there. If you're curious, you can kind of click around, see a little bit more about the history, what's been going on, and even see the documentation of the case. I thank you for your interest. On a related topic, there is a new committee in Congress created by Republicans and modeled after what was called the Church Committee in the 1970s. It's already digging into alleged abuses by those in the FBI, the Justice Department, and other federal agencies. Going back to 1975, it was a senator named Frank Church, a Democrat, who led this committee tasked with investigating government abuse against Americans. Sounds so familiar today. The FBI and the CIA were accused of unconstitutional spying on U.S. citizens. The findings inspired new controls, including the creation of a secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to add checks on U.S. intel agencies. Well, despite that, it's happened again. In recent years, that very court and others have unearthed ongoing abuses by the same intel agencies. And I can tell you that of all the cases we know about, and there are certainly more we've never learned about, but of the ones that have become public, very seldom is anyone held accountable. The intel agencies are allowed to continue to operate in the same fashion, even when the court itself, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, spanks them for doing unconstitutional or unauthorized or illegal things when it comes to spying on American citizens. Well, after a short break, we will hear from a member of the new Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. He's Republican Thomas Massey of Kentucky. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of cool products. A lot of them make great gifts that feature catchphrases like, I tested positive for critical thinking, and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab. Now we're going to hear from Thomas Massey, a Republican from Kentucky. First, we're going to talk with him while we have him about the importance of the Congressional Rules Committee with Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives since January for the first time in a while. Then he's going to talk about the new version of the Church Committee. But I also threw in there a little bit about the debt ceiling, COVID funding, and well, you'll hear for yourself. Let's start by talking about the Rules Committee. Mm-hmm. You're on the Rules Committee, and was that a concession negotiated as part of this whole speaker's debate that ha- we all saw unfolding? The fact that there would be three independently-minded conservatives on the Rules Committee is probably the biggest concession that was made in that first week when Kevin was elected to speaker. Uh, th- it's a very small committee. It's the oldest committee in the House of Representatives. 
Every bill goes through the Rules Committee, and most people at home don't even know it exists. But it's where a lot of the power resides. There are, uh, it's the most lopsided committee. There are nine members of the majority and four of the minority. So something really severe would have to happen for the speaker not to have his way in that committee. And um, what they've done is given us three seats. So ostensibly- Meaning this, this subgroup of Republicans. Right, the subgroup. There were 20 rebels. They put two of the rebels on there and I'm considered rebel adjacent. Okay. So uh, the, there were three of us. And um, if three of us were to vote against the wishes of the leadership in that committee, the, the vote would be four, uh, four Democrats and three Republicans against, so that's seven, and then six Republicans re representing the speaker, four, and the motion wouldn't carry and the bill would be stopped dead. So it's, it's a pretty sobering power. We don't intend to use it that way. We don't intend to uh, imprint our ideological preferences on bills in that committee. What I intend to do is to get us back to regular order to make sure that we don't suspend rules that we already have, like three days to read a bill or the one bill, one topic rule. Let me go back to, was the Rules Committee the reason that under Democrat Nancy Pelosi, bills could pass without anybody having the time to read them? Exactly, yes. Nancy Pelosi had uh, a 72-hour rule for the last four years, in fact, and uh, I thought that was very magnanimous of her until about four weeks in and the Rules Committee suspended it and suspended it regularly for the next four years. Uh, they can do weird things to bills. They can change what's in the bill in the Rules Committee. They can weld two bills together so that you can't vote for one without voting for the other, which is one of the grievances that I've had over the past 10 years that I aired with the chairman and with the Speaker of the House here before I got on the committee. Surprises are for little kids at birthday parties, not the Rules Committee. So I wanted to let them know where I stood on that, but I'm pretty sure they knew. Okay, let's talk about this new committee that's been formed. Was this also part of a negotiation with the Speaker's fuss, or was this always going to be a committee under a Republican majority? So the new committee, which they're likening to the Church Committee, which is uh, uh, we've titled it the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. That's a mouthful. But uh, there, there were rumblings of it in December already, uh, sort of conceded that this, this committee would exist. But what happened during that pressure-filled week with 15 rounds of voting for, for the speaker was that um, Dan Bishop and I, Dan's also gonna be on this committee, were negotiating to make sure that this committee wouldn't be hemmed in. That, for instance, uh, we weren't gonna be limited to the FBI and the DOJ. If a trail led to another three-letter agency, use your imagination, that we would be able to get access to top secret information uh, that was granted and, and put in the charter for this committee. The other thing that was put in the charter at our insistence was that we could investigate ongoing investigations because that's the big smoke screen that the, um, you know, the DOJ and FBI always try to throw up to say that you don't have the right to come look at this stuff. But I would tell the DOJ and the FBI, we created them. They don't exist without Congress. We could uncreate them, we can recreate them, and they're not immune to our oversight in any aspect.
and, and these investigations go on forever, so there's a very long period of time where you can't mm -hmm. ask about something that's going on. Are, you think they'll follow the rules? Huh. Well, the Democrats were apoplectic when they saw that we put in our charter for this new church committee that we would have the ability to go after and into ongoing investigations. They said, oh, that's an abuse of congressional power. <laughs> Trust me, I don't think there's ever been such a thing. We've atrophied so far. But the reality is in Watergate, there was an ongoing criminal investigation. That didn't stop Congress. In Iran-Contra, there was an ongoing criminal investigation. That didn't stop Congress. And the best precedent, the Democrats themselves set. There were a thousand ongoing investigations on January 6th, and they plowed right through that. So we're not going to let the, the DOJ and the FBI or any other organization use that as a smokescreen anymore. Merrick Garland tried to use that on me in a hearing. We were in the minority. We didn't have the power to call his bluff, but now we do. There are some who would say, and this may be considered sort of a radical viewpoint, but that some of our federal agencies, including the FBI, are so rife with issues and problems that they almost need to be rebuilt. Do you think there's anything like that on the table, or is the committee going to look at lesser ways to try to address problems that arise? Well, the committee itself doesn't have a legislative charter, but unlike the January 6th committee, this committee resides as a subcommittee of the Judiciary Committee. So ultimately, if we do find things that are uh, an affront to the, to the American public and that need to be changed, we're right there inside of the Judiciary Committee and we could suggest and, and go ahead and pass reforms in the Judiciary Committee to address the things that we found. The other significance of this committee being a select subcommittee but also within the jurisdiction of a standing committee is that committee has authorization authority for the funding of these agencies. So if they say, we're not giving you the information, of course the first thing you do is go to court but I would argue that we could also and should also immediately start working on defunding that portion of the agency. What are some of the things that you're interested personally in first examining? It's a target-rich environment. Um, we're looking for acts of commission, not omission, okay? It's weaponization, it's not incompetence. Uh, so for instance, it, to me, it's debatable whether this committee really should be investigating the the lack of diligence in Hunter Biden or Hunter Biden's laptop or in uh, Joe Biden's handling of classified documents. That that might be an issue for our larger Judiciary Committee, but those they could argue are acts of incompetence and not the targeting of Americans. Uh, so I would start with what we know, what's already in the public which is the Twitter files, for instance. The, the fact that we know the FBI paid Twitter, we know the FBI suggested and Twitter complied with, to the, in fairness to them, they occasionally pushed back, but they did comply in many instances of shutting down the free speech of private citizens at the insistence of the government who was paying them, if not uh, you know, directly for that activity, at least for another activity. And I think you've got a violation of the First Amendment when you have a collaboration that's that close. When there is a violation of a constitutional amendment, who punishes that or what is the recourse, particularly if the agency making the alleged error or misconduct is in charge of prosecutions? There's not going to be a prosecution of themselves. You know, I've, I've run into this before on the Oversight Committee. We called in Lois Lerner and she took the fifth. It's pretty clear that she was upper mid-level management and whether she was acting at the direction of somebody or acting on her own. 
that she was undertaking unconstitutional activity against Americans and we never were able to convict her or even get to her pension. Uh, then, then you had Eric Holder who was in contempt of Congress and re refused to answer our questions or to show up. And um, we referred him to the DOJ and is the DOJ going to investigate their boss? Well, in that case, they didn't. But things have changed a little bit. Uh, with the January 6th committee, they sort of set some precedents that you, know, you could go after private citizens. And if they didn't show up, even if they're no longer working for the government, you, they were referred criminally and, and in some cases pursued. So things have changed. I think the Democrats may regret setting new precedents in terms of how far afield you can go or what you can do with those people. Of course, I expect there to be a double standard and it's gonna be hard. At the end of the day, the big thing that these organizations, or maybe I should call them organisms fear, is cutting off their food source, which is money. And that's where, that's ultimately what we can do, even if we can't you know, prosecute the individuals in charge. So let's say you unearth what you see are some persistent problems or politicization or weaponization. What is something practical you could see potentially coming out of this, something realistic? Um, legislation, uh, I think creating causes of action, for instance, you know, it's really hard to sue the federal government. Maybe there needs to be legislation that gives you uh, a right to sue the government if, because in, in a lot of cases it doesn't exist except in some really small windows like they violated your religious freedom, for instance. Maybe we need to create some more of those areas so that when this does happen again, people have an ability to go to the courts. And then, um, you know, every time there's one of these investigations, there's a little whittling around the edges to try to, you know, this should never happen again. Hopefully we can do that, but uh, genuinely and uh, with a lot of diligence. And then let's talk about one more topic we'll also walk and talk about it, but why, why is the issue of the debt important to you? Ah, <sighs> it's, uh, it's important because we ignore it. Uh, you know, the Democrats say, oh, you should just go ahead and raise the debt limit because you've spent all, we've spent that money and um, you have to, you know, pay your bills. The reality is we haven't spent that money. We voted to spend that money, but I'll, we haven't spent the money. You can't spend money you don't have or haven't borrowed. That's why we're having this vote right now on the debt limit. Uh, it was 16 trillion, and it's, it's like an almost unfathomable number when I came to Congress, 16 trillion when I was running for office 10 years ago. It's double that now. And what I, what I realized when I came to Congress is Everybody's concerned about the debt limit. There's just different levels of concern and urgency. For me, it's really urgent because it, printing this money, we've started to monetize our debt. When I, this is something that's changed since I first got here. We used to borrow the money. Well, during COVID, there wasn't enough money to borrow, so they just printed it. Like $5 trillion of money supply created out of thin air. That's starting to affect Americans. Now, instead of saying, oh, you've each got you know, $80,000 of debt to your, to your name, if we were to apportion it or whatever that number is, you can say you just lost a month of your salary because there was one twelfth of, uh, you know, 8.3% inflation this year. And then I did think of one more thing, I'm sorry. I wanted to ask you, do you have any remarks about where we are with CDC, COVID mandates, they've been overturned for the military, although I'm not sure that's completely resolved. People in New York State have been 
ordered, the state's been ordered to hire people back, but the state's appealing. We're, we're in sort of this period where there's a lot going on. I think the tide is turning. Uh, more evidence is coming out. They have to concede that these injuries, um, a lot of them were caused by the vaccine. People are understanding the, the perils of developing something so quickly without testing. Uh, I'm hopeful it'll come out. I think there will be a lot of investigations. And I've introduced a bill myself to uh, end one of these ridiculous mandates. Now that we've ended the military vaccine mandate, which was a bill that I sponsored that became part of law in December, I've taken up another cause, which is to drop the ridiculous vaccine mandate on visitors who fly to the United States. We have millions of people pouring across the border. I guarantee you they don't have vaccine cards. And meanwhile, we have hundreds of thousands of people that have to fill out paperwork to come to this country and we've got relatives who are separated from relatives. That is stupid, it needs to end. Even like these dictatorships don't do this in their countries, but we're still doing that one. I'd love to tell you that I think this new congressional committee that's looking at weaponization of the FBI and federal agencies I'd love to tell you that I think they're going to make a big difference, get to the bottom of the corruption and the problems and take care of it. But let's be honest, even if there are well-meaning people who want to do that, both Democrats and Republicans don't have a good track record for accomplishing something like that. Considering just the abuses that we know about over recent decades, the FBI and other federal agencies that have been caught doing so many bad things they wouldn't still exist in their current form unless they were really calling the shots over members of Congress. If Congress were conducting real oversight, these agencies would be reformed, there would be people held accountable no longer in the positions they held, there would be people held accountable, even prosecuted for the wrongdoing that's been exposed. But that hasn't happened. There's a lot of lip service maybe even, as I said, some well-meaning members of Congress that would like to do the right thing. But when it comes down to brass tacks, nothing ever seems to really change. At least we're having the discussion, and maybe that will ultimately lead to something. If you'd like to see my interview with Congressman Massey, you can watch my TV program on Sunday, Full Measure, April 23rd. For all the ways to watch, go to CherylAckison.com. Click the full measure tab. There's a list of TV stations and times. And you can always watch either live at 9.30 Eastern time on our website online at fullmeasure.news or replays there right after that. We post the replays after this airs on TV on Sundays. So lots of ways to watch. We do a great deal of independent, accurate, fair reporting on underserved topics, underreported topics, off-narrative topics, Good old-fashioned reporting that you used to see more often. It will make you feel good again about journalism, that some of it is still being committed. Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a master class in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of The Lemonade Mermaid, and I've designed an exclusive shade-shifting multichrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of golden pink or green and pink and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. 
and listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the Store tab, and browse our great products The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Atkinson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.